0: Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked, a podcast where listeners discover how enterprise data and automation leaders are solving their most complex unstructured data challenges. I'm your host, Chris Wells. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm your host, Christopher Wells, VP of R&D at Indico Data. And I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest today, Dr. Christina Duda, um, Director of Intelligent Automation at AECOM. Christina, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure.
0: Good. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me, too. Um, as we're getting started, uh, you've had an interesting journey in your career. I'd love to hear about it and then sort of take us all the way to today and what you're doing, uh, if you wouldn't mind starting there.
1: Sure. So I actually started my career as a technical expert. I started in IT almost 12 years ago, where I um, took a bachelor's degree in Uh, computer science. Then I moved towards a master degree in parallel and distributed computer systems. And then I actually um, pursued one of my passions, which was research. And I actually did a PhD. And this was focused also on computer science. Um, I want to mention that I am a technology geek, which means that while I was doing my PhD, I also started working. And um, I was a software engineer for almost five years. And I engaged with different tools. um, And afterwards, um, I thought it was the moment to do a career shift, and that's when I heard for the first time about RPA, and I decided to pursue that path. I saw the potential seven years ago in this particular technology, and I said, I want to get in as fast as I can. So I started working on RPA as a software developer, and then um, easily progressed towards technical leader, then towards um, leading different centers for RPA and center of excellences. And now I'm in the position of a director of a global center of excellence here at the Ecom.
0: That's fantastic. Um, your career journey is almost as winding as mine. I I did a PhD in theoretical physics and somehow ended up uh, in the automation space. So it's it's good to be talking to a fellow wanderer.
1: <laughs> I think they all intertwined to be honest. So you're always going to find glimpsing um, pieces of research or anything like that in the automation space. So you're never going to miss necessarily doing research like you did for PhD for sure.
0: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, I, you know, this show is all about talking to COE leaders and and automation and analytics leaders. Um, as you think about that journey you've been on and landing at Aecom, how does how does how does the center of excellence at Aecom function? You know, what are the what are the roles? What are the business units you interface with? Just anything you could tell us about that would be interesting to our to our viewers.
1: Sure, I think uh, companies are very different. Uh, What is right now particular for us is that the Global Center of Excellence is actually under the GBS, the Global Business Services, as an overall um, operating unit. And as part of this, we interface with almost, I would say, every department across ACOM. And we are automating every back office process that is available for us to automate. in terms of the way that we are actually built um the center of excellence was officially formed almost one year and a half ago um there were a lot of tentatives previously and there were um the foundation was already set by using different tools to automate business processes but there wasn't necessarily a formal context around it or a formal structure And this was defined one and a half years ago. Um, I would say that mainly right now we have a full-fledged COE in the sense that there is a team of around 10 people right now. We have all the dedicated roles. So we have our architects, we have um, business analysts, we have delivery lead, we have developers, we have a dedicated support team that's working on that one. And we have what I like to call shared business analysts, because in general, the the knowledge sits within the business and not necessarily yep. within the COE. So I prefer to use the people that actually have the knowledge whenever we're trying to automate processes.
0: Interesting. So the, the shared business analysts are sort of double agents. They're working for both exactly. sides, right? Yes. Oh. And
1: they are our main drivers, to be honest. They put in the good word for us.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, they, I, I assume they eventually become the champions within the business for the project, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I've talked to a lot of folks that have that um they have that construct within their COE but they haven't given it a formal name and I I really liked the shared business analyst framing of it. That's that's cool. That's really <laughs> good.
1: I think it's about empowering people to see an opportunity for them to grow in the automation space because everybody is yeah. afraid, from a business perspective, about automation and how it can actually impact their daily jobs. So when you actually shift it towards, okay, you can bring more value by looking at automation um, yeah. and showing how they can grow, it's it's actually something that um, is driving more and more opportunities for
0: us. Yeah, that's excellent. So thinking about those, that team and those roles, and you've been at it for 18 months now, you've, you have been in, the, in, this, uh, you know, in this vertical for a while, but um, for this group, about 18 months, what's the typical timeline for a project from, you know, someone says, hey, this might be an opportunity to it's in production and, and people are relying on the automation?
1: I think it, the answer, it, it depends. Correct. It depends a lot on um, what department are we talking about, because each department comes with their own regulations, compliance, and procedures. Um, It depends on the applications we interact with, because you might have limitations in terms of the IT applications that processes interact with. So you also need to consider that. And it also depends on, let's say, the priority at strategic business levels? Is that something that's going to produce an impact overall on you as a person, um, a group of people, or the entire department? So we, we usually consider this whenever we're starting, let's say, on the path of, let's say, um, doing an assessment and prioritizing an opportunity. And then, it. Goes into the space. Okay, let's say we reached a particular assessment. The process is feasible for automation and it has a specific complexity. We define three complexities we have a small complexity, which is simple for us, we have medium complexity, we have medium towards high, and we have high complexity. So we try to put this in place and we're um, actually, I think. I'm not sure how many COEs are doing that, but we are actually following an agile methodology. Okay. Which means that we're trying to show incremental value to the business. We've realized that it's extremely important to show how the robot works progressively for them to actually gain more knowledge and to be able to interact with it in the end, instead of actually waiting towards the end and say, hey, this is the robot, test it out and see how it works. So for us, it works. And we see a lot of reduction in the way we're delivering the robots if we do this type of um, agile methodology whenever we're delivering. So to come back to your question, because I took a <laughs> detour yeah, no, that's good. while answering that, I think it um, it may start from a simple process that gets delivered in overall from the moment you assess the opportunity to the moment you actually put it into production um, one month for simple ones. Okay. Then it goes between, let's say, uh, one month and eight weeks. Um, So two months, whenever we're talking about medium ones and medium towards high, and then we're talking about probably three months whenever we're talking about very complex automations that include, let's say, more than 10 applications that they interact with, or we're talking about cross-department applications and cross-department users that we actually need to engage to get the requirements and be able to to deliver that particular automation. So it comes down to that, to be honest, um, and that's what we have currently in place.
0: Amazing, I love the detail. Uh, to your previous comment, lots of COEs talking about talk about being agile, but they're really just waterfall in agile clothes. Um, that's been that's been my experience. It's it's hard to break those habits, especially a lot of COE leads. You know, they don't have the software background that you have, right, and so. You've actually like done agile right, and you know what it looks like and doesn't so that that's a big deal um, and it doesn't surprise me that you know given those timelines that you're moving so quickly because you are you are taking agile seriously
1: um, we are sense. and uh, again, I think it's a methodology that people should embrace as we go down the path of automation um, because it streamlines not only the delivery, but it streamlines the way that the team is working as well. It's very helpful to put structure around the team, the tasks and everything that's being delivered. You have a clear vision of what has been done, what still is pending and everybody can have a visibility on how the COE is working. So it's a yeah. very easy way to to have um, a measurement of the way you're actually doing delivery.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um- Good. So let's talk a little bit about um, the interaction between complexity and payoff, right? So you know there must be some efficient frontier where something becomes so complex that it's not worth what it could pay off, the impact of the business. and there must be you know some really easy to automate things that just don't have enough payoff to be worth doing. so how do you how do you think about the interaction between those two yeah. vertices?
1: It comes down to the idea of how you have it set up in your COE. To give a particular example, um, right now, we are looking at um, overall business objectives. We try to align whatever we're trying to automate with the overall business objectives to see if they make sense or if they don't make sense. Whenever we're talking about quick wins, because we have quick wins, right? Like, I don't know, a person wants to automate the emails they send out on a daily basis or maybe Ah, even something more simplistic those types of opportunities, we do encourage people to come to us and expose them to us and tell us about them, but we're keeping them from what we call citizen developers. So we like people to actually be able to work on real use cases, and that's where we give them the pool of opportunities. These are simple um, examples, real life examples that we use within the company. So they get the sense of how to actually develop and build automations using those small um, complexity use cases. And for the rest, we actually prioritize them together with the leadership. We go through a circle whenever we validate, let's say the opportunities that may have a bigger ROI, align them with the strategic objectives, what we are trying to achieve um, this year, in the next two years, in the next three years to see exactly where this fits. And then we start um, delivering those opportunities. So mainly this is what we do when it comes to what is the, I would say the benefits that we get from automations.
0: Okay. That's interesting. So the quick wins, they're quick wins because they don't affect a lot of different folks, and therefore let the folks that they affect take care of them, I guess, is sort of what you're saying, right? Yes, fascinating. And then the stuff that has a major impact and therefore therefore will need ongoing maintenance and governance that that goes into the full you know the machinery and and all of that's taken care of, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a good breakdown. I I, um, I haven't talked to a lot of COE leads that think that way. It's usually everything's under control or it's the total wild west and nothing's under control. Uh, and I like, I like the breakdown uh, that you've got going on. That's cool.
1: Um, I would say that definitely people um, are looking towards federating their COEs because yeah. um, there are too many opportunities that are going to remain untapped unless you try this approach. And um, if you start with a strong governance and you put that in place, whenever you're deciding to move towards a federated model and embed that in the culture of the company, it's going yeah. to be very easy to migrate into this space and start having citizen developers actually doing automations.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's a great way to say it, embedding it in your culture. Um, okay, so let's zoom out a little bit and talk about uh, COEs more broadly for automation and analytics. Um, from what you've described, I would sort of place what you're doing all the way on the, the far end of maturity in terms of how COEs think about things and process and all of that. Um, I noticed that you were at Intelligent Automation Week about a month ago. And so I'm I'm wondering what you're seeing lately in terms of how you think about maturity, how other companies are thinking about maturity and like If you're, you know, three standard deviations away from the mean in terms of maturity, where would you put the rest of the, you know, the rest of this vertical?
1: If we were to refer, let's say, to purely automation maturity. Yeah. Okay. If we are referring to automation maturity, I think um, there has been a great evolution since the last two years, to be honest. Everybody is growing towards that space where governance, procedures, um, delivery methodologies are in place, and they have a clear vision on what they want to achieve throughout, let's say, one year, two years, three years um, terms, and that's very important. One thing that is very important, and I realize that it's happening more and more, is the idea of diversity. Um, yeah. Everybody is realizing that there is not one solution that fits every problem that they're going to have and that there is not one technology that's going to be only for their particular industry. So people are diversifying in terms of the tools that they are going to use uh, for the challenges that they are trying to resolve. So while let's say five years back we had three main RPA vendors and everybody was using them, right now we have such a wide pool of tools um, based on what we are trying to achieve that is actually much, much easier to pick them up, put them inside of your COE, see how they integrate, and then do a strategy around them and see exactly how you're going to scale them up or how they are going to evolve throughout time. This is something that is very visible right now. And I think it's very good because it gives us as COE leaders a lot of um, flexibility on what we are trying to do. Um, Otherwise we would have been limited to a few options and that's not necessarily the best way to move forward with these technologies. (laughs)
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've heard the same thing that in the last few years, the stack, you know, the automation stack or fabric, some people will call it, has gotten more diverse. Um, you don't need to name the individual technologies unless that'll get you a break on your license and therefore go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what what are the categories of technologies now that you're seeing as like indispensable for getting your job done and your your team to be productive?
1: If I were to start, think about the end-to-end lifecycle development. Yeah. Let's start with opportunity assessment. Previously, this was a very highly manual task that people were doing. We needed dedicated BAs for that. Right now, that space is covered by very good technologies. Uh, we have task mining that can help you drill down to the task yeah. level and get that insight that you need from systems that are not necessarily enterprise systems, because that is where task mining brings value. You can connect the systems that don't necessarily give you particular logs, And then it comes to the process mining, adding the process mining to be able to understand how is your company working? Where are your processes um, flaws, I would say? How can you actually improve your processes, re-engineer your processes, and then apply automation? So it starts from the idea of process improvement and process discovery so you can identify where are your areas and how you can apply automation and then i would go into the space of okay what type of technologies do you want to use for automation because not necessarily rpa is always the answer you can think about system integrations we have integrations and that's for sure something that you can leverage You have RPA tools that definitely you can leverage. And you also have, I would say, um, the possibility to build custom applications that are managed centrally. And that also gives you a possibility to automate within a particular flow, like building, let's say, um, an engine that's going to do some decision rules for you or building a particular flow and workflow inside of those tools. So it depends in the middle what you wanna put in terms of processing and I would say overall automation. You can do test automation. So it depends on what challenge you're trying to resolve. And then I would say that in the end, it all comes down to performance measurement. This is something that was lacking in the previous years. Right now, people are looking, I would say, at um, a lot of data analytics tool that's going to help them understand what is the performance? What are my actuals versus my estimates? You have a clear vision of what you have invested and what is there to actually continue to invest in that particular um, COE or in that particular capability. Yeah. And I would go even further than that, to the idea of that you do need an management for your solutions to be able to do, I would say, incident and change management. All of these come all together. And. Yeah. Um, think about expanding even more, because right now we're talking about uh, inputs that are coming as structured, right? So we're talking about data that comes from systems, data that comes from, let's say, um, different digital formats, but you also have the possibility to use uh, the new vendors that are in the intelligent document processing space to actually get data from unstructured document that also feds into those automation solutions that you wanna build, either with RPA, with integration, or with any other tool that sits within the middle. So I would say that it depends in where are you looking at the stage of the life cycle and what exactly would you need to show the value of those particular stages.
0: Great. All right. Let me, I want to, I want to race off into unstructured, but I'm going to try to be disciplined and, and recap all of that. Cause that was great information. So you talked about task mining. You talked about process mining. You talked about the actual automation stack, which may be, traditional programming, but also the RPA tools themselves. Um, Then you talked about visibility into the process and the ROI. And I'm, I'm assuming this is, you know, you're talking about some dashboarding in Tableau or something like that. Right. Okay. And then there's, and then there's, there's tech to make the management oversight easy. Does that, does that capture everything that you just said? Yes. Good. All right. Good. Uh, That second cup of coffee was working this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's, that's an excellent overview. And I, I think, um, one of the things that you're highlighting, one of our marketing folks was asking me like, why is now the time to get into unstructured data? And I think there are, for me, there are two answers. One's the pessimistic answer. Like there's a lot of risk in the world, just period and unstructured data because you can't easily see into it. Like you could a database potentially warehouses a lot of risk. Um, but then there's the optimistic answer, which is the tools have just in the last couple of years gotten really good. And I think the more mature COEs like the one that you're, that you're running and driving um, have realized that. And so uh, to switch gears with that optimistic idea in mind, how, what is unstructured data to you? Where does it come from? What does it do and what's hard about it?
1: I would say that right now I'm considering unstructured data. Everything that comes, I would say, as not organized, right? Everything that doesn't have a predefined schema or yeah. model, it's something that I would call as unstructured. And I would say that is the data that cannot be, um, I like to call it unlabeled, untabbed. Right um unfindable and untapped right because it's the yeah. data that sits everywhere but you don't have an organization um, you don't have it organized or you don't have it secure in any way so it's the yeah. data that sits out there but can actually bring a lot of value
0: yeah yeah i like that i uh, my my usual definition is anything that doesn't fit easily in a spreadsheet uh-uh. And I, that's I think, <laughs> I think our two definitions are pretty. Well I would aligned.
1: expand it to database, not necessarily a yeah. spreadsheet, because it holds yeah. more.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, although people do abuse Excel, don't they? Um, right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway, that's enough of that. So unstructured uh, doesn't have a predefined schema. I like untapped. Right, it's bytes on a disk somewhere, and you don't know what's in there. Um, so practically speaking. That ends up being documents of various types, Excel, for example, PowerPoint, PDF, images, video, audio, and then, you know, any sort of mutant hybrids of all of those things. So
1: think about social media right now, because it's expanding more and more social media posts, web page content that you can actually use and think about the marketing and the sales team that can actually benefit from those. Think about like uh, whenever we have meetings right now, we're doing Transcripts, right? Every yeah. transcript that sits in those meetings and you can gain insights from. So everything that is around that space, even if you're thinking about, I like, would say, um, articles that sit across different subjects and you would need to get get that information on a specific subject.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, social media is a great one, generating terabytes of uh, yeah. maybe mostly, mostly silly data every day, but still, it's unstructured. Um, So you talked, we talked a little bit about what it is. Um, Why has it taken so long for technologies to become useful in this space? And uh, another way to ask that question is what's hard about unstructured data?
1: I would say it's hard to organize it. That's the main challenge: organizing the data and actually tracking the data. It's very difficult, and that's why mainly people are considering that information as either useless or very bad quality. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they even consider it a liability because if you have missing yeah. information and not connecting dots, you're reaching the space of I would say um, risks in the security and privacy space. So it's very difficult because companies need to, I would say, ask themselves three questions. How do you store that data? Because we're talking about extremely large volumes of unstructured data. How do you integrate it? Because you need to put it into your enterprise systems. What do you do with it after you actually get the data? So you need to see how you can actually fit it into your systems. And last but not least, how do you secure it? Because right now it's not secure. How do you put measurements around that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great. I mean, you're basically naming all of the things that are not true about, uh, (laughs) structured structured data, right? Like you, you still have to secure a database, but that's a lot easier than securing a blob store full of various, I mean, it could be anything in there. Right. So it's a really different problem. Um, tying this back to the COE, um, what kinds of tools are you using in the unstructured space? You talked about the categories, where, where does unstructured and where does unstructured tooling fit in that stack?
1: I would say that it comes at the, um, for us, it's just another tool within our technology stack and we do use them. Um, it depends on the use case itself. So for instance, we're using a combination we're using, um, OCR for semi-structured documents if we were yep. to need that, but it's not something that we actually promote because it's already past that moment within the technology space. Um, we use out-of-the-box IDP tools to yep. be able to get value from the unstructured documents, but we also use separately, for instance, NLP and machine learning whenever we need to customize our tweak based on the use cases that we have.
0: Interesting. Okay. So... You're talking about the full spectrum of structure from like, I assume some of that out of the box stuff works on like form style documents, right? Like and very structured. Finance,
1: I would say so. Most yeah. of the tools are very well defined in the finance spectrum and yep. on finance documents.
0: Okay, right on. And then you've got generic OCR, which is good for sort of key value style things that exist in the document. And then In terms of uh, the custom machine learning models, do you have a platform? Are you building your own stuff? Hugging face, like how how have you approached it? Given your background, I could imagine it being just about anything.
1: I would say that um, we do have and we build some models internally because they fit only ACOM needs and we use Python to build those models. It's not necessarily the best approach when you try to scale something very fast. So I would suggest that if there's something that's out there on the market, try to use that first and then go for a customized approach. For us, for one of the particular use cases, we we weren't able to find exactly what we wanted and that's why we started building that. But I would encourage to actually use the ones that exist on the market. And I usually say this because people have dedicated research and resources to building these kinds of tools. So for me to actually start from scratch, it's a new total cost of ownership to build that. It's about finding the right skills um, and the right resources to be able to do that particular algorithm. So it's better to go for an out-of-the-box approach if it's possible, and if not, try to customize your own.
0: Yeah, Oh, that's that's fantastic advice. I uh, I try not to use this podcast as a sales pitch for Indico, but and it's not sexy. But one of the most valuable things about these platforms that you're talking about is they handle all that operational stuff if they're good. Um, Anybody can build a machine learning model nowadays, like you can, you can watch YouTube videos that tell you exactly what to click and what code to type, but managing them out in the wild in the enterprise is a big job. And so make sure, yeah, make sure you're talking to your vendors about how they solve that problem for you. It's really important. I it. Great advice. Um, all right. So you talked about some success with unstructured. It, it sounded like, um, the finance space is where there's a lot of that's sort of the hotspot right now. Um, where have you seen, and it doesn't necessarily have to be you or what's going on at AECOM, but where have you seen COE struggle with unstructured? Like, what, what are the hard use cases out there?
1: If I were to maybe pinpoint from my previous experience a few use yeah. cases where I saw a lot of struggles, um, I would start with data anonymization. This is extremely important. And when um, the new regulations related to GDPR kicked in for Europe especially, that is when everybody was looking to how they can actually anonymize all their data across all of the documents and think about contracts, think about any lease um, agreements, anything that includes PII data. And that's something that you need to quickly solve um on actual data and historical data because everything needed to be cleaned up and i would say scrambled and removed from from those um documents so that was one area where i saw people were struggling and um, it's something very important that is considered nowadays whenever we're talking about data one other space i would say that people are struggling when it comes down to understanding um, The potential of unstructured data from large agreements like contracts, how do you actually leverage contracts to gain insights and how can you build and streamline your contract reviews process, for instance, how can you do that and that's a space that still I would say there are a few. Use cases, And there are a few companies that were able to do something, but I think there is much more potential that sits in that space related to how you can actually identify contract types, how you can decide if the user is a buyer or a seller, how you can flag the risks, because imagine reading hundreds of pages of contract, and for sure that's error prone, because you as a user get tired sometimes, so you may miss something that is flagged actually as a risk.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. There, there are a few things I want to drill into there. Um, in terms of like the PII, PHI types of anonymization and spoofing and all of that, when that was a struggle, and I, I think it's actually still probably a struggle in, in most cases, um, is it the technology? Is it the requirements, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, regulations being so stark, it, all of it, what, what, makes that, what makes that hard in your mind?
1: I would say it's both because, first of all, you have a large volume of data that you need to cleanse instantly, which is extremely hard for you as a company to do. And you had specific timelines and deadlines to perform those tasks. And the second part was related to, okay, um, technology at that moment, not all of them were able to find PII data. So, yeah. right now, we're good in terms of finding um let's say, um, addresses, names, birth dates, um, let's say, pictures of national IDs or passports. So that's right now at a very good point. But if you were to look like two years back when GDPR kicked in with all of these requirements, yeah. Yeah. that's when everybody was struggling and how do we actually remove all that data from millions of documents?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the requirement is that you remove it all. But of course, these are all statistical technologies, right? So at what confidence level is the thing that your data scientist is going to ask and the regulator is going to say like 100%. 100%. And, and <laughs> those, those are not compatible ways of thinking, right? So that's a struggle. Um, on the contracts bit, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. So, you know, intelligent document processing, Intelligent process automation, sort of born out of, um, or at least born adjacent to RPA and and robotics, right? Um, for for better or worse, that's the way these things have come about. RPA is very much about we've got something; it's a very clear process most of the time, and we can sort of straight through process things if we if we have the right scope and we have the right tools and we document well, then we can straight through process. And I've seen a lot of folks talk about that with documents, that that that's the ultimate goal, the straight-through process. And I've also seen others talking about the goal is return on investment and reduce time on task and do the simple things for the human. Where do you fall on this? Is it a future of robots? Is it a future of robot-human hybrids? Uh, Something else I'm missing. How are you thinking about that?
1: I would say it's about digital workforce. So it's a hybrid workforce. I don't see it as being necessarily the the technology that's going to have 100% straight uh, throughput rate because that's not going to happen, to be honest. You're still having variations and you're still having elements that come um, as new every time and you cannot guarantee that. So that's why it's a human-robot collaboration. That's how I see it.
0: Yeah, no, I I see it the same way. And maybe maybe I led you there partly in the answer. But um, you know, you know more about this than I do. So Um, okay, so given that, that it's a, it's a, I think you call it a digital workforce, right? A hybrid workforce. Um, RPA, the RPA tools and vendors don't talk that way, for the most part, maybe they're starting to a little bit. But given that framing of what you think is coming and where we are now, What's missing in the tech stack? Like what has to change in the tech stack to get us where we, where you think we should be?
1: Are you referring from a technology perspective or what exactly?
0: Uh, I, I guess I'm interested in both. Like, Are there technologies, interfaces that are missing? And then are there skill sets, people, process aspects of of this space that are missing right now that would make this easier to get there?
1: I would say that it's a work in progress on the three domains, like people, process, and technology. And I will start with people, first of all, because people need to understand and be aware of what does it mean to interact with an intelligent document processing technology. That's still something very new for them. And um, the idea of errors and training the models, it's not something very familiar. So it needs to be educated and users need to be trained into that space. So that comes down to also process. How do you define that process of the new way of working? How are people going, for instance, to do contract reviews moving ahead with such a solution in place? Where do they fit in within the entire process? Where do they do their validations? Where do they do, let's say, the increase in threshold or the confidence of the algorithm? And um, last but not least, I think it's also about the technology. The technology is going to definitely going to improve as we go um, through these types of use cases, in the sense it's going to be more user friendly and it's very easy for people to understand how they can interact with it. How do you do the validations? How do you do the changes? how you can customize these particular types of technologies to fit your needs or your particular processes. So I think it's an improvement in that space. I'm not able to pinpoint right now a particular gap, but I would say that's the direction, having something very user-friendly that easily embeds into the day-to-day processes of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You you talked a little bit about citizen developers. I'm not sure, in most places anyway, it sounds like you've gotten there uh, at AECOM. But in most places, I think that dream of citizen developers for RPA hasn't really been realized to the extent that we thought it might be. Um, But I think on the unstructured side, there's a real chance that that dream could be realized in the sense that, you know, developing a machine learning algorithm is really just labeling data, right? And telling the machine what it is that the machine should care about. Um, I actually, I talk about machine teaching a lot more than I talk about machine learning um, because... You know, that that's really what we want to do and make easy is the teaching the learnings already figured out right um, we have, we have algorithms for that. Uh, interesting. So let's um, let's see let's try to come in here for a landing. Um, like I said, uh, you were at intelligent automation week a little while ago we talked about some of the recent history of the COE and the automation space. Um, You were sort of an early mover in that space. So I I credit you for your foresight. And I want to take advantage of that foresight. So given where we are right now, like what are the next, it's a fast moving space. So let's limit it to two years. What are the big things that are coming in the next two years for for unstructured and for automation more generically?
1: We need an extra hour for this. (laughs) (laughs) There are. I can make that happen.
0: Don't don't tempt me. (laughs)
1: There are so many things happening right now. Um, I would start by mentioning that semantic AI, it's catching up very fast. Uh-huh. And it's going to be definitely incorporated in the space of unstructured data yep. that is um, more and more uh, embedded into the idea of how do we do automation and how do we apply it and where does it fit. I would then refer to the idea that unstructured documents and unstructured data also fits in in the space of process mining and task mining because you still tap yeah. I would say, unstructured data. It's like you're getting into emails, into documents and into, into those spaces. So it's still around there. And that's where um, a big focus is going to be on process mining and how process mining is what people like to call right now as a buzz. The digital twin is going to be part of the digital twin. Uh-huh. And how do you process mining within the digital twin strategy? That's one other thing that's coming right now. Um, Related to the idea of semantic AI, hand in hand, it goes uh, with conversational AI, right? How do you take the data from everything that's happening right now with IVR, with chatbots, with every interaction that we've completely migrated from human agents towards the technology? And how do you actually um, gain insights from that data? And I'm trying to think that overall, if there's something right now at automation level that is growing more and more, I would say that the main focus is shifting almost everything towards AI and having decision-based um, AI data-driven um, decisions and this particular space. So I would say that it's a very high um, visibility right now on all of the tools that have AI embedded in
0: them. Yeah. Okay. Now I people like to sprinkle AI into things to make it, you know, it's almost like adding MSG to a dish, right? And it makes the flavor better.
1: Depends on um, what AI. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. So what are in terms of automation specifically, what are you most hopeful about with AI being added in? Is it is it the you know sort of Bayesian algorithms helping bots to make better decisions or is, or is there something else that you're excited about?
1: I would say that right now I'm envisioning what people like to call digital workers like building completely yeah. rules and functions um, that would be able to work together with a, people, a person that has the same role and function. So for instance, if I'm an account payable, I want to have a digital worker that is an account payable next to me that's able to do the same type of roles and responsibilities that I do.
0: Yeah. And, and back to your point about conversational AI, you know, you can get them on teams or Slack, right. When you need to interact with them. Um, yeah. I, I think so there's a real
1: sharing as well, even if it's a technology yeah. or not, you still have, you still have to have it there.
0: Yeah. Especially if you have the, you know, the semantic technologies underneath underneath of it. Right. And um, it can make those connections for you. Interesting. Now that again, on topics, speaking of topics that could take another hour, meta just released their giant chatbot right uh about two months ago and one of the things that i found most interesting about that release was the the level to which they disclaimed it like basically this thing's probably biased we don't trust it you definitely shouldn't trust it like user beware um how do we and that that raises the larger point that um Robotics is nice because we can pinpoint like, this is why it's doing, this is why it did what it did. Um, how do we get, how do we continue to get the enterprise comfortable with AI and machine learning solutions, which you know, they don't have that characteristic, generally speaking?
1: This is an ongoing, I think, uh, challenge that everybody is facing. How are yeah. we looking at AI from that perspective? Um, I don't know if there's a particular solution right now for that. Yeah problem. I would mention that it starts with the idea of building trust. Um, AI is still new for a lot of companies and for a lot of people. And that's why there is a a general reluctance on what it can do and until um, what particular point in your processes or within your company, you should use it before it actually starts doing um, much more harm than good. So yep. that's something that starts from a trust level and then grow up towards that one in the sense of, okay, how do you put around it governance? How do you think about yep. operations? But it's not something that has a particular response right now. It's an ongoing challenge and is the subject that every time I'm talking to leaders in the industry, they bring this up. How do we do
0: yep.
1: Um, and how do we promote AI as a technology that's worth being implemented and embedded within companies without looking into that space of, okay, is it good or is it bad?
0: Yeah, right, yeah, eventually everyone sort of, not everyone, that's too strong. A lot of people eventually just punt and say, is it accurate enough? And of course that, you know, accuracy doesn't really tell you everything you need to know, uh, but it's an easier question to answer. Um, The point about trust is really important. I think part of the reason it's hard to trust the AI Is often, And I've seen this in my work consulting for folks on, you know, getting an ML solution up and running as part of your um, automation stack. Part of the reason it's hard to trust the AI is because we don't have a really good understanding of what the humans are doing, right? And so I've, I've been in situations where, you know, you have each person label 50 documents. That's a part of their normal flow, right? They're doing data entry in these documents and, you know, the model should be great. With 300 labeled documents, but it's terrible. And it turns out it's terrible because everyone labeled the documents differently. So in fact, what you thought was one process was actually six different processes and a latent variable, which is who got what email at what time, and then and therefore processed it processed it differently. Um, so like you get those results, you think everyone's doing the same thing, and then it's like, hey, this model's terrible. And it's well, it's like terrible because your process is terrible. Um, so it learned exactly what it was supposed to but uh, you know, having that honesty about humans are good at ambiguity and we're good at sort of dealing with those things <laughs> and machines aren't, right? And we, we have to own up to that, I think, if we're gonna keep working with machines.
1: And it's the idea of making sure that people are open to failure. I keep on saying that nothing um, is perfect. You're not going to have an ML that's going to work the first time you put it there. Nope. You need to continue improving it as you go through the process. So nobody should expect like ninety percent straight through rate as soon as you put something in place. That's not happening. You need to make sure that everything you've captured in terms of requirements of and way of working is actually aligned. So, yeah, failure is yeah. Important. extremely yeah. important. <laughs> it
0: is, yeah, it is, and it, you have to find. This is. Uh, I'll. I'll come back to one of the points you made earlier, which is you need a vendor that supports. Like, it has to be easy to get a model up and running and, and repeatable, right? Because it's really, there are, there are very easy uh, ways to fail on ML projects, which take nine months to a year before you actually realize that it was a failure. And so you need to be able to iterate quickly. Um, your ML projects need to be agile as well.
1: I wouldn't agree on that yeah. one.
0: Don't be afraid of failure. Um, all right, we talked, you're, you seem like a fairly optimistic person. Uh, What are you worried about with automation and and robotics in the next few years? You talked about like the exciting things to come, but what's scary to you?
1: I wouldn't say I'm necessarily scared of anything. Um, I believe that everything that's still new and out there to come, it's just another challenge we need to tackle. So I wouldn't see it as something scary. I would see that what comes is going to come and we're going to tackle it as soon as it arrives and we'll figure out then what we can do about it. I'm not sure raise something scary about automation and future of automation. I think it's actually very <laughs> exciting, to be honest.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. I I think I, I, think I was right. You're an optimist. I I have some things I'm scared of, but I'm a little bit more For pessimist. Example? Maybe. Um, I am worried that uh, the enterprise will continue to think about um intelligent automation the same way it thinks about RPA and a lot of intelligent automation projects will die on the table because, again, that hyper-focus on accuracy, it's entirely the wrong thing to be focused on. Um, You should be focused on how your human and uh, digital workers are making each other together faster, right? Rather than, you know, what's my F1 score? Uh, So (laughs) that one worries worries me a lot. In fact, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, right? Is to tell people that like like you've been saying, like there are better ways to think about these things. Um, and you need to actually be agile. You need to be willing to fail fast, even on really hard things like ML-driven projects. Um, so anyway, long story short, not being able to change the dialogue for the better broadly is something that worries me. Um, I think a lot of uh, potential could go untapped.
1: I think it's um, something that's in work in progress because you're going to see more and more leaders with that mindset that um, whenever we're talking about intelligent automation, we're talking about more than costs and efficiency. And they are not seeing it just as a tool that's being added to their stack. They're actually looking at it strategically. What do I wanna do in the next three years and how can actually intelligent automation support me overall? even if we're talking about customer experience, right? So we want to improve yeah. the customer experience space, even if we're talking about improving employee experience and giving them the opportunity to grow, or even if we're talking, let's say, about streamlining our processes. I think right now that's one of the best things that's happening. We, ha- we see more and more leaders that go into the space of what can intelligent automation do beyond the initial wins, like cost yeah. and wins.
0: Yeah, yeah. Try starting to climb up the tree higher, right? The low-hanging fruits sort of been picked already. Um, but
1: it is work in progress. We are not there it is yet. In progress.
0: But yeah.
1: we are going to get there. So everybody is going to reach a particular digital maturity within the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You think that's you think that's in that that same two-year window that we were talking about?
1: I would say yes, because the the technology <laughs> evolves very fast, and we. Relevant on the market, you need to have this competitive advantage with intelligent automation.
0: okay, yeah, I agree all right we're uh we're coming down to the wire here. Uh, sometimes I like to ask this question, What should I have asked you that I forgot to ask you what else What else do we need to hear
1: um, i'm I'm trying to think if there's something that you haven't asked me. yeah. No. No, I would say that whenever everybody is onboarding into the intelligent automation journey, um, they need to ask themselves why they want to do that, how they want to do that, and identify the people that are able to drive that for them. So it comes down to the idea of a people culture. And I think this is really important because without people, you don't have success. And you mentioned dedicated on the example of the machine driven project, right? So it comes down to raising awareness for your people and building your people into that space so you can actually drive your um, automation journey. And I would say this is it. So think about the people whenever you're onboarding new technology, whenever you're changing processes, whenever you're um, looking at strategic objectives, how would this impact your people? Either your colleagues, your leadership or um, your day-to-day employees.
0: Yeah. Great advice. I, I, uh, we often spend so much time talking about the code and the robots and the data, and and really, all of them sort of serve uh, at the pleasure and for the benefit of the people who are involved in the process, right? It's good exactly. not to forget that. Well, uh, this has been Unstructured Unlocked. I'm Chris Wells, and I have had uh, just a fantastic time talking to Dr. Christina Duda, director of intelligent automation at Aecom. Christina. Everyone out there needs to be following you on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter, wherever. Uh, you, you, you've given us some great tidbits today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful that you took out the time.
1: Thank you for having me for having me here. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, wonderful. We'll have to we'll have to do this again. It sounds like there's more to talk about. For sure. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at IndicoData on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.